This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 299. Man, I don't think you can stay relevant in this business if you don't, you don't watch the signs and what's happening around you and learn to adapt your business. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everyone? This is Brandon Turner, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my assistant to the regional manager, Mr. David Green. <laughs> oh, I love when you call me that. <laughs> that was your joke because to- I took it and now it's my joke. Yeah, you took it and used it against me. Yeah, for those who don't you, know, you, took the, you gotta watch The right. Office. I was gonna say you gotta watch The Office. If people we're have gonna no change idea. my name to Dwight Schrute instead we might. of Green. That's actually, you know, pretty close. You guys are like <laughs> brothers. Anyway, what's up, David Green? How you doing? I'm good, man. I just got back from hanging with you in Hawaii for you the did? last twelve days. I didn't even know. I know it, it seems like forever ago because you missed me when I'm gone, but Maybe. I got a nice little tan going on. I'm refreshed. I get to jump back into the grind of selling real estate and it's not so bad when you've got Hawaii on the mind. Tan? Are you sure that's not the burn that's on your chest? You sure? Ooh, yeah. from your insult that you just delivered. <laughs> no, from the fact that you wouldn't put sunscreen on when I told you to. Oh yeah. Jeez. That's a problem, oh, man. Yeah. Like thirty seconds in the Hawaiian <laughs> sun and I'm crispy. Yeah, there you go. Well, uh anyway. I had a good time with you. It was a lot of fun. And uh, we have an amazing show today with a guy that I've looked up to for a long, 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 long time and uh, been wanting to get on the show now for like 299 episodes. Mr. Ken Corsini, who is the star of HGTV's uh, Flip or Flop Atlanta. And he's also an avid Bigger Pockets member, been involved for many, many years. He and his wife are just rock star house flippers, new construction. They own some rentals. We talk about all that stuff today here on the show. You guys are really going to love this. I mean, like just his idea of like adaptability and how that matters so much. This idea of price creep. And then make sure you listen to his deep dive, the deal deep dive we do towards the end of the show. He talks about making like, I mean, this deal is just fantastic and how he worked with a new investor to make it happen really is inspiring for people who are brand new because of what this uh, investor that brought him the deal got out of it. So anyway, super cool. But before we get to that, let's get to today's Quick, quick tip. tip. All right, in today's show with Ken, we talk a little bit about uh, estimating rehab costs, a little bit about the construction process. And so I wanted to actually um, mention here, in case you were not aware, you know, a lot of people know that we've got a rental property calculator and a flipping calculator and burr calculator and wholesaling calculator on BP, and they're used a lot. But what a lot of people don't know, because honestly, we haven't done a great job of talking about it, is that we built a rehab estimation calculator. And just this morning, I'm sitting on this couch with a buddy of mine who's visiting uh, named Jeremy. And Jeremy is a new investor. He's actually on our show uh, a few years back in one of the newbie episodes. But he is hanging out with me and I'm showing him this tool because he's talking about estimating rehab costs, kind of how he struggles with that. And I'm walking him through this thing. And I was like, this is really, really good. Like, this is really cool. We don't talk about this enough. So I just want to throw that out there in a not so quick quick tip. Go check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Biggerpockets.com slash Calc, C-A-L-C. That's kind of the short code to get you to that page. And check out the rehab estimation tool. It is really, really cool. So that's your quick tip today. Passive income without the property headache, it's possible. 
There's a way to invest passively in real estate and get monthly income without any tenants, maintenance, or property management. The wealthy have been doing this for years, and if you're an accredited or high net worth investor, you too can collect cash flow without the headaches that come from owning rentals. How? By investing in a private real estate fund with PPR Capital Management. PPR's co-founder, Dave Van Horn, wrote the book on real estate note investing for BP. But he's not just investing in notes. Dave and his team also have an extensive background in commercial real estate. And with PPR Capital Management, they're strategically investing in both notes and commercial real estate nationwide. With over half a billion dollars in assets under management, PPR has provided individuals with a steady source of truly passive income since 2007 without ever missing a payment. Check them out at investwithppr.com. Again, if you're looking to get monthly passive income from an experienced team with a strong track record, go to investwithppr.com today. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. So, David, anything else you want to cover before we get into the show? You guys need to be prepared for an awesome show. I mean, yeah. Ken is an experienced investor who's very successful. He's on TV. He's flipping houses. He's owning rentals. He's building new stuff. I mean, you're going to learn a lot in this episode, no matter where you are in your own experience. So this is yeah. probably one you want to listen to twice, and I'm excited to get you guys into it. There you go. All right. And oh, last thing before I get into it, uh, Ken's new episode of his show, Flipper Club Atlanta, airs on October 11th, and then it's on, I think he said Thursday nights after that. Uh, so make sure you guys watch it, support Ken, support a bigger pockets member who's making waves in the world of television. And we do talk about the TV show later in the show. We talk about, is it real? Find out uh, what he says about that later. So with that, Let's get to the interview. All right, Ken, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. Good to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks, guys. Yeah. So, besides being an international heartthrob and movie star or, you know, television star, you are also a real estate investor and you've been doing it for a long time. In fact, you were on Bigger Pockets, I'm sure, before I was ever on Bigger Pockets. And I remember years and years and years ago watching a video that you did an interview with Josh. You know, it was like the pre Bigger Pockets podcast world, like back when Josh did it by himself, just YouTube wise. So, uh, you've been right. you've been around for a long, long time, which is cool. So we kind of hear the whole the whole story today. Been around, that's why I got the gray beard to show for it too. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so uh, let's go. Let's go at the very beginning of your journey. I mean, what did you do before real estate, and how did you get into this? So I graduated from University of Georgia. Uh, I had a business degree in risk management. So I came out of school and went right into working for uh, an insurance brokerage. And it was specifically on their software, the software side. It was risk management information systems. And I did that for five years. And it was an awesome career start for me. But like any entrepreneur, anybody that's got the itch, it, was, you know, it wasn't fulfilling. 
I, I had to get into something that was my own. And so I was exploring different business opportunities. I actually almost opened a Chick-fil-A at one point in time. I kind of went through that whole process. And, I, and then ultimately I decided, you know what? I, I just like real estate so much. And I was listening to Carlton Sheets. You guys remember the original Carlton Sheets, yep. No Money Down CD course. I had bought that at a garage sale for 10 bucks. Nice. <laughs> and I was just wearing those CDs out, listening, you know, driving back and forth to this corporate job, listening to Carlton Sheets every day and just fell in love with the idea of real estate. And so I had to find a way to exit the corporate world and get into real estate. And so I, uh, I was actually researching different franchises and I actually found it's a quasi franchise out of Seattle. They sort of did training. You sort of bought a territory. It was, they were a little bit shady. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them may or may not be in jail right now. I'm not sure. Uh, but wow. it was it was actually really good. So for the first two years, essentially what I did is I wholesaled lease options, which okay. is a real sort of specific niche. It was a cool business model where we would partner investors with potential lease purchase tenants. And then we would uh, sort of broker that deal and, and carve out an assignment in the middle. And so this was in 2005. So 2005, as you remember, was a fantastic market. I mean, the, yeah. everything was clipping along. Everybody was getting a loan. And you know, two years later, 2007, then the world started crumbling around me. And they actually went out of business, this quasi-franchise. And I was sort of struggling, what am I going to do next? You know, this business model doesn't really work. It was sort of predicated on, uh, on appreciation, which you know, everybody just assumed, hey, houses will appreciate forever. And that went away. And so in 2007, 2008, I remember just thinking to myself, what am I going to do next? The market's crumbling around me. And, uh, and that's when I changed my business model to the, the turnkey model. And so I did the turnkey model for a number of years. And, and actually, it was the downturn that grew our business more than anything, because there was just a plethora of REOs and HUDs. And they were, especially here in Atlanta, they were just so ridiculously yeah. cheap. And finding houses, it was like shooting fish in a barrel. It was amazing. <laughs> can, you, so we, can you explain what turnkey is for those who haven't heard that term? People ask me yeah. that whenever I do like a webinar, people are always ask me, well, what do you think of turnkey? So I'm curious also, what is turnkey? And then what do you think of it today? What's the pros and cons? Yeah. So turnkey is essentially you're, you're creating a product turnkey that you sell to an investor. So that's us taking a distressed house, typically like an REO or foreclosure, fixing it and putting a tenant in place. So you've created this cash flowing asset. And then we would sell that asset to investors. And typically we were selling to out-of-state investors. So I did a lot of traveling and speaking back and forth in, in California, a lot of those RIAs out there, a lot of those clubs, and just sold a boatload of turnkeys in Atlanta. And of course, I'm kicking myself now that I didn't keep more of them. I know. They were just such <laughs> sweetheart Dude, deals yeah. now in hindsight. I mean, I sold hundreds and hundreds of houses for seventy and $80,000. You know that today are worth one hundred and fifty thousand bucks, and they're spitting off great cash flow. And yeah. it was, was a good, a, but it was a great good deal for your investors. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, good for them. Win so, win, right? So, what do you think of those today? I mean, like a lot of people want to know: Should I just go buy Turnkey today? Do you think that's still a model for investors to do? Yeah, in the right markets, it is. You know, it's tough in Atlanta. I mean, Atlanta is a hot market. Right? I mean, we're at the top of the market, I'd say, right now. So. Yeah. Finding the houses where those deals make sense are hard, which is why we don't really even do turnkey anymore. Now we're really just a fix and flip operation. But there are other, especially Midwest, I think, markets where turnkey still makes sense. You know, some of the smaller markets, maybe mid markets that the Kansas cities and the Indianapolis's and Memphis, you know, where you can still buy at a, at a reasonable price and get strong cash flow. I think it's a great viable 
model for any investor that's getting into the space. Absolutely. Yeah. I always say like, you know, turnkey can be great just like any real estate can be great if the numbers work out, right? The problem I've usually had with turnkey is that sometimes the numbers aren't up to par. And that, like some companies are much better than other companies that I've seen. But, you know, some of them are like, yeah, you don't need to worry about repairs. We already fixed the house. You don't need to worry about vacancy. We won't, it will, not, it will never be empty. And I'm like, well, it, you know, it will be eventually. Like you should probably calculate something for that, right? And yes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, like, I, yeah, don't let anybody else do your homework. If you do your math homework, then who cares if the deal is being sold by a bank, being sold by a turnkey company, being sold by, you know, some little old lady, a deal's a deal if it's a deal. That's so. right. Yeah. yeah. And to your point, it is all about the operator who's yeah. selling you the house. Are they reputable? Have they been around? And then the other yeah. component is property management because yeah. they could sell you the house and then they're gone. Who's managing that property for the next five years for you? That's yeah. a critical component. Yeah. And there are a lot of bad property managers out there. You know, <laughs> So many bad, so yeah. many bad property managers. <laughs> all right. So what, what came next? So you got into flipping houses. I mean, the fix and flip, that was the, that was your focus for a number of years, right? Yeah. So 2008-ish is when we carved out this turnkey model. And what's funny, it, was, it wasn't even called turnkey at the, at the time. I mean, I, I think maybe I thought I invented turnkey <laughs> because I felt like maybe I was operating <laughs> in a little bit of a vacuum here and I didn't know anybody else was doing the exact same thing I was doing. And, and we, we lived on that, man, through 2013 and 14 maybe is when our business really started to shift. And it was it got more challenging. It got more challenging because uh, the funds sort of descended on Atlanta, the big hedge funds. Yeah. Then all of a sudden they're gobbling up all the inventory and the prices are starting to shoot through the roof. And that's again, where we had to adapt and say, all right, this is, this market's changing right underneath our feet. How do we you know, sustain a viable business? And that's when the market was strong enough that we just you know, started flipping houses. Let's just, you know, maybe half of them were turnkey, half were flips. And then gradually they all became flips and almost no turnkey. Interesting. Yeah. So you moved away from that into to regular flipping so that you're buying distressed houses still, fixing them up yep. and selling them just now to retail buyers. That's right. So yep. why, why did you not do turn? Like, why didn't you not do uh, retail just from the beginning? Like why turnkey over retail? Uh, why would you sell to investors and not just to, you know, the higher price point buyers? Well, par- partly because they just weren't around. There was just yeah. so little demand for inventory because, uh, I mean, even think about 2011, 2012. I mean, at least here in Atlanta, there had not been any recovery yet. And the market was still just stagnant. So the prospect of fixing up a house, putting a lot of money into it, and it just sitting on the market for months on end was still a very real prospect. And for us, if you had a good sales pipeline, man, I'd much rather sell a turnkey house and know that I can make a quick 10 or 15 grand. Yeah then try to make 30 grand and it sit on the market for six months. Sure. If you had a good pipeline of investors, that was just, you know, the model for us was volume. And so, you know, turnkey, you could do volume retail. You just, I mean, it, I don't think the inventory existed then to do any sort of volume with yeah. uh, just straight flipping. Yeah, that makes sense. So there's like this, this theme I see throughout your career. And I know like now you've gotten into new construction, I hear as well, right? Right, yeah. So yeah, there's this like theme of, you adapt or you, you're changing strategies quite often. Now, a lot of newbies, we talk to brand new investors and say, you know, focus on something. Yet your career shows that you've shifted from different things. Why is that? Man, I don't think you can stay relevant in this business if you don't, you don't watch the signs and what's happening around you and learn to adapt your business. And that's really been the story of our lives for the last 13 years that I've been in this. I mean, I was in it for two years and then the crash. And then I did turnkey for, you know, six, seven years 
And then when the market changed and the hedge funds came, I had to adapt again and, and start uh, you know, doing the, just the straight flips. And now we're, it's interesting, even the area that I concentrate in around Atlanta has changed where I used to really work in the suburbs. Well, now the opportunity in Atlanta is in town. It's a lot of those urban neighborhoods where you're seeing the, the transitions and people want to be back closer to town. They're tired of their commutes and some of those blighted neighborhoods are turning around. And so zip codes that I swore off that I would never do deals. Most of my deals are in those zip codes now. That's funny. And again, it's just because you have to adapt. Where's the opportunity? What's the market giving you? And then you have to be able to you know, shift your business in that direction. Yeah, that's cool. So, you know, Brandon and I talk about what you're referring to a lot about the need to be adaptable. And Brandon has this really, really good analogy. I do. Where he refers to the, well, okay. you have one, I suppose. <laughs> I have one analogy. On you. Great. All right, good. Yeah. Well, Let's hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, I've rubbed off on you and improved your game. Yeah, he talks right. about how like the more you know about real estate investing, the more tools you have in your tool belt and you can fix more problems when you have more abilities, uh, more different like solutions to things. So if all you have is a hammer, everything's a nail. You can't handle screws. You can't saw anything. You can't fix as much stuff. And the, the real estate market is cyclical by nature. And that's a good thing because it allows smart people to make money. If it wasn't, if it was just this like steady linear progress, you'd have to wait forever before you can make any cash. You probably wouldn't even cash flow when you first bought a house. So you should embrace that as cyclical. But knowing that you have to be able to be adaptable because what worked in 2005 would not work now. And what works now isn't going to work around the next time we have a 2005, right? So I love what you're saying, Ken, that you're like, it almost sounds like you believe that your strength is that you can adapt to the market. You talked about Atlanta was your home market and hedge funds like landed on it. And that's exactly what we see. We see, you know, we had the crash and then they started buying in California. And then those hedge funds moved into like Phoenix and Las Vegas and they just hammered that. And then they went to Atlanta. And then from there, they moved on into like, like North Florida. And now there's a lot in like uh, Huntsville, Alabama. You see a lot of that stuff. Um, Memphis was another big one. So you have to be able to adapt your strategy because the big boys are going to come in after they see a good thing and they're just going to wipe you out. Can you give us a little bit of advice for like how you got to this point that you recognize that adaptability was one of the best traits you could have and became the business person that you did? Yeah, I don't know if uh, five years ago that would I would have even maybe connected the dots that that's why we're still in business. I think maybe 13 years under my belt and realizing that it's it's, I feel like it's almost every year. It's like, okay, what's going to work this year for us to stay relevant? It's really dynamic. I mean, this industry, it changes so fast. Yeah, it does. Strategies that we were employing to acquire a property last year. It's like everybody catches on. Like this. So the hedge funds catches on, but so does everybody else. Everybody else in your market's like, hey man, robo-dialing works. We should all robo-dial. And then that doesn't work. These postcards, man, these were fantastic. Well, you know, a year later, that doesn't work because everybody's doing it. So it, it's just now realizing how important it is to adapt. I mean, I'm constantly, I mean, I sent an email off today to my general manager just about the end of the year. Here are bullet points of what we need to tackle between now and the end of the year, because I'm already seeing shifts in our market just in the last couple months. And so you have to constantly be front of mind that, okay, I got, I got to be watching for the signs that I can be nimble. For any, really, that's the thing about the hedge funds. They're not super nimble. Yeah. You know, but once they get, they gain momentum and steam, then they just, you know, then they're a juggernaut that'll yep. just blow over you. But we're small enough that we can kind of shift and adapt more quickly than they do. I love that. I think that's like super important to realize. Like we, a lot of people think like, oh, the hedge funds or these, these big investors, you know, that are buying dozens of houses, how am I going to compete with them? Well, when you're small, like you're much more nimble. 
and you can do things that they can't do. You can test more easily. So on that note, a lot of people, you have to shift off at times, right? Especially your marketing, you want to be the top of your game. How do you discover, like, how do you personally, like, discover the next big thing? How are you learning new tactics? Like the, ro- you know, a robocall or the postcard or the, you know, and not just, I'm not talking just marketing, but just in general, your business. How do you stay on top? That's a great question. You know, honestly, so I've been in a mastermind for a couple of years, a real mm-hmm. estate mastermind. And I would say for any real estate investor, it doesn't have to be a mastermind, but it should be a, a group, whether it's a RIA or it's a small group inside of a RIA, or it's just other people that are in the industry. So you can bounce ideas and share ideas off of each other. Being in a mastermind has been huge for me, especially guys in other markets where maybe their market is seeing something we haven't seen yet, but it's sort of indicating, hey, this yep. is coming. Like a lot of times Phoenix sort of foreshadows what's going to happen in Atlanta. So knowing people in those markets has been real helpful and, and other guys are experimenting. So, you know, some guy might've experimented with this and it worked and everybody's like, wow, okay, I'm going to try that in my market and see if that works. Yeah. So I don't want to take too much credit. Usually I'm just stealing other people's really good ideas. <laughs> Me too. Well, that's exactly what I was hoping you would say. Cause I'm like that, like by just hanging around with other real estate investors, like especially in other markets, like you learn what worked for them. And you're not competing with them because you're in a whole, totally different market. So like, they're usually not that shy to share what they're doing. Um, totally. Yeah, we're actually, uh, so I don't think we've even talked about this on the show yet at all yet, but we're coming out with a journal in like a few months here at the end of the year uh, for real estate investors. And as part of that, one of the things we're building right now on the site is a kind of a form your own. And I don't want to say too much because we're still in process of development, but like a, like a form your own mastermind group kind of thing where you can uh, jump into the site with other bigger pockets members and form your own little group. And it'll just be included as part of like, you know, getting this journal, which I think is kind of cool. But uh, I'm just teasing that right now. So y'all know that's kind of coming. It's very cool. Yeah. A way to like that's a get, great idea yeah thanks i think it's pretty cool like again people like when you surround yourself with like-minded people and learn what they're doing in their markets yeah so anyway that's coming soon so everyone stay tuned for that uh, at the end of the year but uh all right so that's cool so the last question on this on this front and then i'll stop hogging the mic from david how, how does somebody know like what strategy works in a given market if adaptability is key which i totally agree and you know you know, turnkey worked for a while. The lease option worked for a while. Flipping worked for a while. Now a new construction is working really well for you right now. It sounds like, and we'll talk about that in a minute. How do you know what market, what, what works in today's market? I guess, you know, if you're, if you're a newbie, you know, you probably just going to a RIA and meeting other investors and seeing what they're doing, probably clue you into what's popular. I mean, if you've been around for a little bit, it's usually pretty obvious. I mean, if you're in a market where the rents just make a lot of sense based on how much you can buy a house for, then, you, you know, it's probably a good turnkey turnkey market or even a buy and hold market if that's what you're looking for. You know, if you're in a really hot market, you know, where it's uh, low days on market, houses are turning quickly, that's probably a strong flipping market potentially. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's probably more obvious than most people think. I mean, if you're in the market, you probably, you see what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. If somebody else is successful at it, you probably will be too. I mean, you could be too. That's right. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I always try to let my frustrations guide my decisions. And it's a weird thing to say. I probably articulated that weird. But when you catch yourself saying, man, I can't find any rentals. These houses are just selling so fast and they're selling for so much and people are overpaying. Don't just sit there and keep banging your head against the wall saying, I need to find buy and hold. Start flipping houses in that market because that's obviously what the market's telling you that you should do and find a different market to do your buy and holds, right? Or if you're a house flipper and you're like, man, my inventory is just sitting on the market forever and I can't move it. And even when I fix it up, nobody's really paying that much for it. Well, that's an easy market to start buying rentals in because there's less competition and the houses sit on the market a lot longer. You know, if you have that ability to have a screwdriver and a hammer 
you can use the one that works best for the situation that you're in. I think what stops a lot of people from moving forward is they're comfortable with like knowing how to run numbers on a spreadsheet, but then actually doing the work that goes into managing a rehab or flipping a house or understanding uh, like design ideas is a little more tricky to them. So Ken, can you share a little bit about some of the skills you develop regarding estimating rehab costs, running construction crews, like what newbies are going to struggle with and what they should be prepared to encounter when they start? Sure. Well, so that's been a big evolution in our business as well. I mean, for a long time, it was turnkey and, you know, turnkey rehabs, maybe 15 to $20,000 rehab. And we had a lot of just, you know, local G small GC type guys that we could turn the whole project over to them and then come back in a month and it was ready to go. It was lipstick and you could put a, you know, a tenant in place where as our business evolved, so did our construction department to where now we have a full blown construction department. I mean, with construction manager, multiple project managers, multiple handymen on payroll, it's just now it's a behemoth, unfortunately. It's, it's a lot to manage, <laughs> but, it's, uh, but it's the function of the business we're doing now. Now, our, literally, our average rehab right now is $90,000 wow. right now. These are big, stinking projects. And so, and, it, and really, it doesn't make a lot of sense for us to just go out there and hire GCs because, you know, they've got an average of 30% markup in that. Yep. Well, that's my stinking margin. <laughs> I mean, yep. I need that. So we've had to basically build out our own teams to run and, and build these, these projects. So not only are we, in, you know, just an investment business, but now we're a full-blown construction business. And to, to do that, we've had to develop systems and budgets and estimates and accountability and all that. And it's, there's been some growing pains for sure over the last couple of years, but I feel like you know, every year we've improved and improved and improved to where we sort of have it down to a science with you know, all those right tools in place to, to manage the construction business. Yeah, that's that's fascinating to me that you like rather you know, you saw, hey, the general contractors are making way, you know, they're taking my profit, right? So I want to maximize yep. my profit. I'm gonna bring it in house. Now, do you have all of your contractors generally in house, just specialties out, or is it just your your top level, and then you hire, you know, grunts from other places. How does that work in the construction part? It's a little bit, of, it's a mixed bag. It's a little yeah. bit of everything. And we still have some, some smaller GC crews that, you know, maybe we'll turn over a smaller project and say, Hey, you, you do this part, but you know, we're going to handle this, this, and this to so some of, especially the larger ones. We just do better if we manage it in-house with our own guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, we have a you know, handful of subs that will, you know, contract ourselves. And we actually have a lot of guys that we call daily guys that are just from unskilled to highly skilled, just daily guys that we can move from project to project. And we just have control over that, which we need. That's a, it's another testament to your flexibility. Like that's, I keep seeing this theme coming up. You're like, well, we have all these projects going on. I need a guy that I can pull out from here and plug into there and he can kind of do both jobs. And it just seems like your business is growing so fast because you're so flexible. You know, Bruce Lee had a quote that he, that you should be like water because water takes on the form of whatever you pour it into. If you pour it into a glass, it takes on the form of a glass. If you pour it into a teacup, it takes on the form of a teacup. And I, I really think that's a skill that people need to understand is like power is in flexibility and your ability to adapt. 100%. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so on, on the construction team, I want to go a little bit more on this. Do you think, like at what level would you, I guess, advise somebody they should consider bringing their construction in-house or do you just kind of feel it when you're there? Yeah, it's, I mean, I think you, you probably feel it when you're there. I mean, obviously most people are going to start by just finding a good GC that they know and like and trust. 
Yeah. And maybe you get a couple under your belt. You know, the pricing is good. You're still making money with them. And honestly, as long as you're making money and you've got a solid GC that you're working with, then maybe you never need to change that. Maybe yeah. that's a fantastic. But as you grow and you see, here's what happens. A lot of these GCs, you start seeing price creep. You've yep. used them yep. and they realize yep. they're, not, they're not making enough. And this next project came in 5,000 higher than the last one. And this one's 10,000 higher than the last one. All of a sudden you start to feel that squeeze a little bit. And at that point, then, you know, maybe you bring on, I think for us, the first person was just like a project manager who just oversaw the GCs and held them accountable and went to the projects and just kind of oversaw that. And eventually that project manager became, he, he developed our business more into where he became the construction manager and hired project managers under, underneath them and brought in subs and brought in daily guys. But that first hire for us was just him just being a project manager, just overseeing the other GCs. And then it just evolves from there. That's cool. That's, that's exactly what I find happening in my business as I've moved from being a police officer into a real estate agent. You have this vision for how you want to grow. And then I find that like it never goes the way I thought it would. It really it goes in the direction of the people that I find. Like I get a talented person who can really help me in this area. And I'm just like, okay, divert resources in that direction because yep. we have a good operator that can help there. Right. I mean, and it's like that for everything from what market I'm going to invest in to what strategy I'm going to take to where I'm going to put my time. Finding good people is so important. And when you find them, that becomes a platform you can build on. And maybe your building doesn't take the the direction you thought it would take, but it's like so good. And then when you find the next piece, like now it's going to move that direction. And I love that you're saying that, like, maybe you don't need to start a construction company. If you have an awesome GC and he's or is or she is content with making a certain amount of money and they do right by you and they just want to put their kids through college and they're not greedy. Like you don't ever have to worry about that. You move in a different direction for your growth. But if your frustration is, man, these this price creep, I love that term. It just keeps coming up, you know, like yeah. I keep cutting it down and it keeps coming back again. Maybe you need to look at a different alternative and, and grow in that direction. Yeah. And I like what you said too, about sometimes you don't plan for it, but you hire talent. And then that talent sort of steers you in a certain direction. That happened with us too. I mean, our first project manager, he was sort of unproven and uh, we put him in that role and it was really, he was the driving force behind, Hey Ken, I can get this for cheaper. Let me do this. And he's the one that ended up building out our, our construction department for us. How do you, how do you find talent? Like in your business, how do you recognize, how do you find and recognize talent? That's the million dollar question right there. (laughs) I mean, I wish I could say that we were so meticulous when we hired people and we did all this personality testing and we just don't. We should. I know I've got friends that do and have more of a science behind it. I mean, for us, obviously, I always ask for referrals first. If there's a position and in fact, speaking of which, so our uh, my construction manager has been with me four years. He's actually on the show with me as uh, he's leaving to take another position actually in the ministry. Oh, cool. So I can't blame him for that. Um, <laughs> but uh but now we're, we have to go find somebody to fill some really big shoes. And so the first place that I go is, uh, is referrals. So I, every agent you know, I know, every person I know, it's like, you know the role that we need to fill. And we got so many good leads just from that. And I'd much rather hire somebody that somebody else knows that's referred to me. Um, but we also put, you know, we, we'll go on Indeed and put a you know, job description out there and look through a ton of resumes and interview 20 people, bring five people back for second interviews and figure out who the best guy is and just cross your fingers that you got the right one. Yeah. What are you looking for? What stands out to you where you're like, oh, that's talent right there. I should dig deeper. That's a, you know, honestly resumes, you know, it's really sort of a gut feeling and it depends on the position. I mean, sometimes you just take a chance on somebody. 
and sometimes, you know, like a position like this, like a construction manager, I need to see a lot of experience. I need somebody that's been in this for a long time. And luckily we, we got a lot of really good resumes with people that really know the industry. But sometimes, you know, just for example, so I've got an acquisition specialist on my team right now. He started off as a door knocker for us, just in neighborhoods, knocking on doors. And he wanted a chance. And I, you know, I was like, ah, we'll, yeah, we'll see. We brought him in and the dude is crushing it for us mm. right now. And it's just, sometimes it's that, it's, you know, that intangible, he's just driven. It's just somebody that's got that motivation, that fire in their gut to be good at something. And I don't know, sometimes it's just instinct to pick up on that in somebody. Yeah, that's well, I think cool. a, a person like that that has such a drive is going to be like a sponge and pick up everything that you're doing, right? Like he's probably learned things being around you that he never would have learned on his own, where there's another person that can be around you just as often and it just bounces off of them. Like everything you're doing, it doesn't really absorb because they don't want it that bad. And that's where like that guy's attitude is exactly what made him successful. He's like, I don't care. I'll go knock on doors, whatever it takes. I just want to be good at this. And then he gets to train at like, you know, the feet of a, a Jedi and he becomes a Jedi <laughs> himself. And now you're like, he's crushing it for us. And that's where opportunity comes from. Every listener who's hearing this, like you got to understand if you're not getting the results you want in life or the opportunity that you're looking for, people can sense that you don't have a great attitude, right? Like if you're talent and you're coming with a talented perspective, they're going to want you around. They're going to be like, Hey, do you want to come hang out with me and see this thing I'm doing? When your mentality is like, gimme, 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 what's in it for me? Or I don't want to do that. Or how do I get successful without having to be adaptable or flexible or change anything? It just turns people off and they're just not going to be very drawn to you. And you, you get the right attitude. You get around a rock star and it's just, you're going to explode. Yeah. And I'll say the other quality too, is just initiative. Man, when you hire somebody and you see that they have initiative, it's, I mean, to a business owner, I mean, there's nothing else like it because that's what you want to see. Somebody out there that's driving your business in new directions and somebody that wants to take on more responsibility. To me, that's a phenomenal quality in somebody. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Hey, hey, Ken, do you do, you do rentals as well now or do you, are you strictly flipping? No, we have rentals. I don't have some massive portfolio of rentals like you do, Brandon, but I do have... Uh, <laughs> that massive. <laughs> I do have, uh, I have a handful of rentals. I don't know, maybe, I couldn't even tell you how many I've got. I don't know, maybe 10 or 15. Okay. Some in different markets. And right now, interestingly, we're, we're picking up Airbnbs right now over just straight rentals. And we've got a handful of those and I got three or four more in the works right now. And it, that's it could, kind of a cool niche that we've yeah. carved out and had some success. And that goes back to that, having that backup strategy of, you know, the only reason we got into Airbnbs is because I got stuck with a house that wouldn't sell yeah. and it was a high end house and I was bleeding money on this thing. And I was like, we got to stop the bleeding folks. I said, let's try Airbnb. It's already staged. There's already furniture in there. And next thing you know, this thing's renting like crazy and it was covering itself. And I was like, holy cow, this works. That's cool. And once we figured that out, we started doing it, you know, and a couple more times, a couple more times. Next thing you know, we got a little Airbnb business going and the rents have been stronger than just on a you know normal 12 month lease. Yeah, that's neat. So the exit strategy thing is important, right? Like in any deal. So when you go into something like how, how much do you think about that? Like, what's my backup if this doesn't work out? Did you always have that or do you just kind of stumble into it? It's uh, I don't think I always had it. You know, luckily the turnkey business early on was such a good way to cut my teeth on this business mm -hmm. because when a house didn't sell, it almost didn't matter because it was rented. And it would cover itself yep. and I could always keep it if I needed to. Yep. There was always a buyer if it was rented eventually. And so I think having that, you know, as a foundation for me, I always fall back on, all right, if this house doesn't sell, I'm renting it and selling it to an investor or now Airbnb's a great backup or lease. I did a lot of lease purchases early on. That's another great backup strategy. 
So it goes back to David, to your analogy of the toolbox. I think we've just been able to develop a lot of cool tools that, you know, over time, if something's not working, there's always something to fall back on for us. Yeah. And the Airbnb strategy is a perfect example of that because right now that is a hot way to get really good returns. It's working super good, but you see like a lot of cities are unhappy about that. And there's a lot of political pressure against the Airbnb model. And if you go all in and say, that's what I'm going to do, I'm going to learn Airbnb and it's all that I'm going to do. You might find yourself 18 months from now having Airbnb illegal where you live. And now you're screwed because you thought your rents would be 3000 and your, your rent drops down to you know 1700 a month or something. And you're not making your nut. It's, you have to be adaptable. You have to know, well, if I buy this house and I do this, is there enough equity in it that I could then sell it and make a profit that way too, 17, 18 months from now, whatever the case is? Yeah. I believe, would you say, Ken, that like your main business right now is flipping houses? Is that kind of your bread and butter? It, it, it is. It's our bread and butter. We've, and I guess I'll quickly digress. So we've got three main businesses and we've got three local offices. One is the flipping business. One is the new construction business. And then one is just a, just a retail brokerage. And so all three of those sort of exist in separate locations with separate people that sort of at the helm, but they all sort of work together too. They all sort of feed each other, which is nice. It's sort of a big, happy family. But honestly, our retail brokerage is growing faster than any other arm in our business right now. It's, and that's, I'm sure the show is fueling that, but also just a pretty cool model that we've put together of, uh, and we've brought on literally a hundred agents in the last year that's and awesome. our, uh, our growth trajectory is pretty, pretty fun on that. That's cool. So the the agency thing is something that I, you know David here has gotten into, and I have not. Do you recommend investors get their license? Should they have that when they get into real estate, or should they? Is it just a, I guess, distraction? You know, that's a that's a great question. That's a, it's funny. That's an age old I feel like debate. Yep. And uh, it depends on the person. If 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 you have any inclination to 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 do any sort of traditional agency you know, represent friends, you know, or uh, occasionally get a listing here or there, which is decent income and on the side, then I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think the only tricky thing is, is then you fall under RESPA. And so there's, as an investor, there's some things you can and can't do when you're an agent and you have to disclose that you're an agent to everybody you talk to. So if you really just want to be an investor, you have no interest in being in a traditional brokerage, then I don't think you need to. I didn't. I actually purposely never became licensed when I got into the business because of that. I actually made my wife get licensed. <laughs> I said, I'm not going to be licensed, but you're going to be you licensed. Can, yep. Yeah. I don't think there's a, wrong, a right or wrong answer to that though. Yeah, I agree. So RESPA, you're referring to the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, which was like a, a bill that was passed that outlined what agents can and can't do and like what the, the ethics will be that govern them. And you can get into some hot water because if you're trying to buy a house from someone and they are a, you're a real estate agent and they're listening to you and taking your advice as if you're a licensed agent and you say, I'll buy it for 200000 and they go, oh, I guess it's only worth 200000 And you don't tell them you might be able to sell this for 300000 that maybe it's an older older person and their kids can come back and sue you and say, you ripped off, you know, my mom or my dad or whatever buying this house. And so if you're not looking to like actually learn how to be a real estate agent and do it as a job, it, in most cases, it probably hurts you, you know, like, and because when you're buying properties, it, you're not paying your agent anyways, which is really, you know, the, where you're going to make the most money. But I'm just, I'd love to talk with you more about how you're growing it so fast and how that's going. Cause you, you've got this really good synergy between the different businesses that you're opening. And Brandon and I were just hanging out in Hawaii for like 12 days. And we talk a lot about how the best businesses to open is one that will be benefited by a business you already own, you know, and then you build that one up and then you look for, well, how, how are these two going to interact and kind of help each other? But on that note, I know you're in new construction, which is something 
so many people have taken on and failed. It's like this Bermuda triangle of all these pilots <laughs> that want to fly and fly through there. And then you never see them again. Really? You know, we hear these horror stories of it. Tell us how that's been going and like what you found is working for you and why you think you've been successful when so many others are not. So in 2007, when everything was crashing around, I, I decided, you know what, this is a great time to go back and get some education. And so I went to I enrolled in a master's program at Georgia Tech. And in 2009, I came out with a degree in uh, building construction and was able to go get licensed. And I only did it really for the education and for the licensing. And so that I knew at some point when the market came back that all these other builders had just been demolished. And when it came back, there was going to be an opportunity for new construction. And it was really just sort of planning ahead that at some point I'm going to get into this. And sure enough, the market, of course, in its cycle came back. And there were so few small builders in Georgia because they had been wiped out. And it was really just your big production guys that were left. And so there was a real opportunity for us to carve out a niche here in Atlanta. And really, it's, it's our small little town, our little suburb of Woodstock, Georgia, which is north of town. That's really where we do the, the majority of our new construction. And it's really where we've built our brand. So our new construction brand is, is Red Barn Construction. Our agency is Red Barn Real Estate. And so we've built a nice little brand in the small community that people recognize us now. And then I hired a really good GC, somebody that had worked for one of the nationals, a buddy of mine from church that I knew, just a real solid guy, and brought him in. And, uh, and like I said, the reason we've had success is because we've carved out a niche. We're not, I'm, not, I'm never going to compete with the big nationals or the big regional players who can build at just stupid you know, cost per square foot. Yeah. But I could build something that they're not building. And so for us, that was large lots. You know, most big builders, they want as small a lot as possible. They yep. want to squeeze as many houses in there that they can. So for us, we, you know, let's carve out some big one acre lots and then let's build in a style that nobody else is really building. And for us, that was farmhouse style, which is real popular right now. I mean, that's sort of the rage with really nice custom finishes, you know, again, that you're not going to see in a production built house. And there's a market for that. I mean, we don't have to do a ton of houses. I think maybe we'll do 20 this year. But there are you know six hundred thousand dollars houses, and there's you know twenty people that'll pay six hundred thousand dollars for one of these houses this yeah. year, and it's a good little boutique new construction business. Can you walk us through the numbers of a new construction deal? Like typically, what are you kind of paying for a lot? What does it typically cost to build? What do you typically sell it for? And so, what's your profit kind of look like? Well, we've we've got a major development going on right now of twenty homes. Uh, and so the lot cost on that's a lot higher because you've got stormwater and paving and all that stuff. But honestly, our bread and butter has been taking little five and 10 acre tracks and doing what's called a minor subdivision where literally it's just a gravel road. And I don't have to spend all the money on infrastructure as long as it's five lots or less. And that really has been our sweet spot these little minor subdivisions. And so in our area, I can buy uh, an acre for about 50,000 an acre. And then if I do a minor subdivision, it's maybe another 25000 in development cost on that. So I can be in a one acre lot, nice, like in a, you know, it's a good part of town for 75000 bucks, And then I can sell that for five to 600000 and probably make about 75000 maybe okay. to even 100000 Okay, that's Which cool. is good. Like, yeah. You don't have to do a whole lot of those. Those are pretty good margins. Yeah. And like I said, I, I have no aspirations of really growing any bigger than this. Mm-hmm. I like being boutique, kind of small. And I don't want to be the guy in two years that gets stuck with a neighborhood because the market yeah. turned on us. <laughs> that's, exactly what I'm a- gonna get stuck. Yeah. that's exactly what I'm always afraid of with new construction. Is like if I own 10 of them in a, or 20 of them in, a, in a one little subdivision, like, and then the market tanks, I got 20 houses. I mean, that's a scary proposition to be in. 
Well, we don't do a ton of specs either. I mean, most of the time we're doing customs for people. Okay, that's cool. We have our houses or pre-sales, I should say. We call them pre-sales. Okay. So they, you basically like that the idea you buy the lot, you subdivide it. Now you put up a big sign saying for sale, we'll build a suit or whatever. Right. And then, yep. then they, that's awesome. That's cool. That's a yeah. good way to so, reduce some of the risk and they'll have the fun 100%. of building. Yep. On the, on the last episode, Brian and I recorded, we were talking to a multifamily investor and we were, you know, talking about how buying single family homes, it's, it's very like, there's more flexibility you can't really scale as much, but you can adapt much quicker. It's like riding a jet ski. And if you see a wave come in, you can zip off to the side. Whereas when you're in this big multifamily space, it can take two years before you build any money. And like it's like trying to, to control an aircraft carrier. It takes forever to get that thing turned around. It's powerful, but you're exposed when the market shifts. Like, oh, there's a storm coming. How do we turn out of the way? It's very difficult. And I, I love the contrast we're getting from your method, which is like, I don't want to be bigger because if I'm bigger, I'm exposed. I, I, I can't move when I see something coming down the pipe that is harmful or it's going to change. I like to be small. I get in there. I make the money when I can. I see it's bad. I get out and I zip back into a, a different area. And I can see like with an attitude like that, you're just going to learn so much about so many different things and you're going to you're be able to do this forever. You'll, you know, 80, 90 years old and you'll be able to be investing <laughs> in real estate still, regardless of what the market's like or how real estate works at that time. That's the goal. It's funny. You watch and you learn. I think maybe uh, maybe all of us were fortunate to see what happened in 2008 and see how many people just lost their shirts. And I was fortunate that I wasn't one of them. But now that's still a lesson learned for all of us is I don't I saw what happened to those folks. And I don't want to be that guy. I want to be prepared when the when the market does turn. Yeah, that's really good. So much better mentality than I'm just not going to invest in yeah. real estate. Right. Yes. I'm just going to use that as my excuse to not get started. Well, people lost money at one point, so I'm not going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. People, yeah. People make that excuse all the time. So Ken, tell us about the TV show a little bit. Like how did that c- come up? How did Flipper Flop Atlanta like become a thing? Well, they were uh, looking for the most handsome man in Georgia. Yeah, that's what I thought. So, <laughs> <laughs> it was 2015 and uh, I just got a random call from a casting director. I think she was, she worked for a production company. And so she was probably Googling, you know, different you know, websites for investors and whatnot, happened to find our website, called me up out of the blue and asked if I wanted to do a, just a Skype call with them. And you know, it's funny, it wasn't the first time I had ever been asked to, to have that conversation with the production company, but for whatever reason, the timing was right. It's like, you know what? Why not? Let's just see what happens. And so Anita and I together jumped on a conference call with this casting director, did a Skype and neither of us took it seriously. Like Anita had literally just come home from the gym was all sweaty. She's drinking her tea, <laughs> just answering their questions. And I think they liked that authenticity that we just didn't care that much and that, you know, our future didn't hinge on whether or not we got a reality show. Yep. And so that turned into, uh, it got green lighted for a sizzle reel. If you're yep. familiar with the sizzle reel, yep. you've, you've filmed this over the sizzle reel. So you, you yeah. know what that is, where basically they come out and film for a couple days and they turn it into like a four minute video that just sort of highlights who you are and what your business is. And so then that sizzle reel got highlighted and green lighted at a HGTV for a pilot. And so they came back out and we shot a pilot uh, over the course of a couple months, which was just a, you know one house all the way through the process. Yep. And then that pilot aired, I want to say in 16, in the summer of 16. And I guess we got enough of the right ratings that they green lit uh, the series. And then they ended up folding us in or, or early on, we were called flipping the South. Oh yeah, I remember that. I watched. I watched the pilot when it was flipping the south. I watched. You you put on Facebook, and I was like, "Oh, I got to check that out." Ken's on TV, so (laughs) that's awesome. Uh, Yeah, and then they folded us into the Flipper Flop franchise, which was 
obviously fantastic for us because there's always some name recognition there. And then uh, it still wasn't until 2017 that the season aired. I mean, it was a long, it was from March of 15 from first contact until the season aired, which was almost two and a half years later. Wow. And, um, and the season did well enough that we got renewed for season two. So we filmed that last year and it's uh, it's, so the season two is about to premiere October 11. That's awesome. So here's a question everyone always asks about TV, right? Is it real? Like, is the, is, are you just making everything up or how does that, how does that work? That's, you know, that's a good question. It is funny how many people just assume that it's just all fantasy. It's not real. And it, I mean, I guess I'm here to state it it is, it's real. I mean, it's, these are our houses that we would have done whether or not the show was here. I mean, the, the renovations we would have done, they're the problems that we run into. And it really is just docu style. I mean, the guys show up with the cameras and if there's mold in the basement, there's mold in the basement. You know, if we need to replace the roof, we need to replace the roof. And so, you know, in our, at least, at least our show, I feel it's very genuine, very authentic to our real business. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, like that's one thing fun about flipping houses is that like the, the drama is real. Like there's been so many times where my wife and I are having a conversation and we're like, this is totally like what you see on TV. Like it's not always exactly like that. And like, I find my own life a little more boring because it's not in 30 minutes versus it's, you know, three months to flip a house. But yeah. like, but the drama, like the arguments that my wife and I will have, like the little, like, you know, debates in the middle of a project are just like you'd see on TV. Um, yeah, it's, it's realistic. I think from what I've seen, just shrunk down into a very condensed, you know, yeah. 30 minute. Yeah, hour my producer is actually good. A lot of times he, he'll already know that there's an issue in the house yep. and won't tell us. And he'll like, <laughs> don't walk in the house. Just wait, don't walk in because he wants to capture our real reactions. Yeah. And we like it. I mean, I think it's, I'd much rather, you know, not have to fake it. I'm not, I'm not a good actor. I would be incredibly robotic <laughs> if I had to, but if he'll ask, you know, <laughs> what do I do with my hands? I don't <laughs> exactly. know. all the time. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what do I do? Uh, <laughs> that would be a very bad show if I had to act. <laughs> I heard, so I he, heard, well, as I was gonna say, I heard, uh, remember the Chronicles of Narnia, the uh, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe movie that came out, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or whatever. The yeah. scene where like Lucy walks through the, 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 the wardrobe and into the, like the winter wonderland. Like I heard that they filmed that whole thing with her not showing her ahead of time. And they actually had her pop out of a box or whatever. And so her reaction was the actual reaction of like, I'm in a winter, like magic wonderland thing. So yeah. I wow. that was really neat. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah, yeah. Cause how many little kids can act that well? I mean, yeah, that's, I know. Yeah. Makes sense. But they do it that way. Anyway, super cool. All right. So the new season premieres on October. What was the date? October 11th. October 11th. So set your DVRs or. Make sure you watch it. That's super cool. Thursday um, nights yeah. at nine. Thursday nights at nine. Get that little plug in there. Do it. Do it. All right. Very, very cool. So, all right. Well, we want to get moving on to the next segment of the show, which we call our Deal Deep Dive. Deep dive. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my 9-to-5 job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. 
Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital Executive Team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Uh, this is the part of the show where we dive deep into like one specific deal that you've done. And so we ask our guests to come up with a deal and we're just going to ask a bunch of pointed questions about it. So first question, they're very specific and you can go as deep or as shallow as you want to go on this. How, uh, what is the deal you want to talk about? First of all, I chose a deal that we were still kind of in process in. I mean, half of the deal is done, half of it's not. Okay. And it's one that's kind of close to our house and on the North side of town, but there's certain cool aspects to it that I think are worth discussing. Okay. And this is a house flip, I'm assuming. It's a house flip and a new construction deal mm-hmm. together. So okay. it was a house. I don't know how much deal you want me to go, sure, you can go. Yeah, right go, now. Yeah, go ahead. We'll ask like finding it, funding it, negotiating it in a minute, but yeah, you can explain the deal a little bit. So this, this particular deal is a, it was an old house built in 1980 on 2.6 acres, which is what really attracted me to it. It was in a really good part of town. It's sort of like an equestrian area. So people like the, you know, the acreage and the house was just really bad, had zero character whatsoever. But the fact that it was on 2.6 acres is really what attracted me to it. Okay, cool. Next one. How did you, so how did you find the deal? Was that MLS or something more fancy? I wish it was MLS, man. I wish we could find deals on the MLS. That'd be fantastic. (laughs) Make life easy, wouldn't it? This, so this one came from, uh, I guess you could call him a wholesaler. It was actually a a buddy of mine. Actually, it was somebody who had bought one of our new construction houses a couple of years ago. We'd stayed in contact. He had gotten into real estate a little bit. He had a full-time job. 
he's listening to bigger pockets every day, you know, listening nice. to the podcast, reading the, you know, he's very involved and he found a deal through his postcard campaign. And it was one of those things. The lesson here is it was a postcard he had sent out a year ago. It sat on this guy's counter for a year and he was finally ready to sell. I think somebody maybe had passed away and he got the phone call and he's working a full-time job. Didn't really have the capacity to flip it and just said, Hey, Ken, I got this deal, you know, can I wholesale it to you? You know, what, what should I do? And I, you know, I took a look at it and I love the deal. I was like, this deal is awesome. How's about you just give me your deal and I'll cut you in on the back end. We'll just, I'll give you a percentage of my profit. And for him, not necessarily having the resources to fund it and do, it took some level of expertise for him. He's like, that's fantastic. I'll take, and it was 15% of our, of our profit oh, cool. of whatever we truly made on the deal. Just, just for basically assigning the deal over to me. And so we ended up buying this deal for 200,000 bucks, which in this part of town, a house, you know, the land is literally almost worth 200,000 bucks. So we knew it was a good deal. And so, uh, yeah, that's basically how I got it was through, uh, through That's this awesome. guy. Yeah. You can ask before you jump onto the rest of this deal. How are you finding deals today? Mostly? Is it mostly wholesalers or it's, uh, it's everything. So we have, we do have a pretty good size acquisition department, acquisition manager, two acquisition specialists. We send out a ton of postcards, send out a bunch of mail. We do direct dialing. We still do a little bit of door knocking. And then we do wholesales. I have one, one of my guys is only assigned to every wholesaler in town. So we vet all the wholesale deals to decide which ones are worth picking up. And occasionally we get lucky and get an MLS deal here and there, but probably like everybody else, it's a shotgun approach. Just throw it up there. Hope something sticks. There you go. So with this deal in particular, once you found it and you knew it was good, how did you negotiate the price of $200,000? He already had it locked up for 200,000. So he went in there and uh, like I said, I think somebody passed away. So it was, I think there was a sense of urgency to get the house sold. So he got it at a good price. He brought it to me. I didn't really have to negotiate. Only negotiating I did really with him was, you know, don't wholesale it to me, just give it to me. And then let's split, split the back end profits together, which, which, I think which is, is great. Yeah, Especially because he, he may have asked for uh, more money up front than the, you might have to give. Right. And yeah. if you do a really good job with it, he realizes I made more with 15% of what Ken did than I would have made with hundred percent of what I would have done. I'm giving Ken all my deals, right? Yeah. You didn't just get a deal. You just got like a deal source from that point forward. That's what I love is if you're better and more efficient at doing this, it's better for him to be giving stuff to you. And you had the vision to see that. So I love that. I bet you he'll probably follow along more closely with the deal as well to see what you're doing, how you're doing it, and probably learn a ton from this process. Yes, absolutely. He was involved, which is great because he's learning. And so we flipped it last year, maybe sold it beginning of this year. That had the house. We, We ended up fixing it and selling it. He was involved in the process. And I will say since that time, he has quit his job and he is a full-time uh, investor now. And That's he awesome. himself is crushing it. I mean, I love to see somebody quit their job, get in the business and his deal flow is fantastic. Super. And I think this was a big part of that. Very cool. All right. How did you fund it? The, the original purchase of this deal? Yep. So we, we fund most of our deals just through private lenders. Okay. We have a you know, pretty good stable of private lenders that we've developed over the years. And it's real. Our model is super simple. It's just 12% interest only, no points, balloon note. You get paid when we get paid. That's awesome. And we went to one of our private lenders. Very simple. So basically what you're saying there is like they lend you the money and let's say they, you have the, the loan for exactly 12 months, then they would make 12% interest on that and they get paid all of it at the end. So you're not making monthly payments to them. 100% correct. Perfect. Yeah, I love I love that model. I don't know why like when I got started with real estate like I never even thought that was an option the you know the balloon payment or the delayed like paying the money. 
So every pretty much every flip I've ever done, I've just paid monthly interest until like two years ago. And some the lender actually was like, well, I don't want to deal with checks in the mail. Just send me it all at the end. And I was like, I can do that. Like what? Like <laughs> that's allowed. That's allowed. Like, wow. And it actually like made sense. I mean, if he trusts me enough with the money anyways, what does he care if he's getting a check in the mail every single month? I have to go deposit it. Or if he just gets it all at the end, I mean, he trusts me regardless. So, and it made my life way easier. So yeah, that's how I typically work now too. So, all right, cool. All right. uh, Next part of that. What did you do with it? So what we did, we took this uh, 1980 style house, which honestly, it says 1980 in the tax record, but this, it looked like 1960 on the inside. (laughs) I'm not hundred percent sure it's right. I mean, it was shag carpeting. I mean, it, it, it's, you walk in and there's just all these little compartments of rooms and kitchens that are all really small. So we went into this ranch style house and just blew it open. I mean, just opened it wide open. There were no more, you know, dining room, kitchen. It was all one big space. We vaulted the ceiling to make it feel even bigger. Uh, there's a basement that we ended up finishing out and getting all this extra square footage in the basement put a gable in the front, it had just a real flat plain roof line. And so we made a nice big front porch with, you know, big cedar gable, crow's feet. I mean, just really added some curb appeal to it. And we subdivided that house onto one acre and left a lot for ourselves on 1.6 acres. And so we ended up putting in, uh, I want to say, hundred about 125000 into rehab. Yeah. Big rehab on this house. I mean, it was uh, before and afters were phenomenal on this thing. But we sold that house so we ended up selling just that house on one acre for 440,000 bucks. Wow. Which was a net of about 125,000. It's 125,000 because on the 1.6 acres, we left a cost basis on that of 50,000, if that makes sense. So when we bought the whole thing for 200,000, the cost basis on the house was 150. The cost basis on the lot was 50,000. That's just sort of in our minds. That's how we segregated them out. Okay. Yep. So on the flip, like I said, we cleared about 125,000 on it, but now we've got this lot, yep. you know, that's 1.6 acres. And, and honestly, in that area, that's, that lot's worth 150,000. So awesome. right out of the gates, we got a lot that's got all this equity in it. And so that's the other half of this deal right now is that we're in the process of building a, a farmhouse on this lot. And at the end of the day, we'll make probably 200,000 bucks uh, on that on that, just on that new construction. And of course, wow. my buddy that brought me the deal, he's going to get paid on that as well. Yep. He'll get another $30,000 check when we sell that. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. That's I, awesome. Yeah. I love, I love that, that whole picture of what happened there with the bringing the guy in. Uh, do you have any advice for people? I know this isn't really part of the deep dive, but like who are in his shoes, you know, somebody who wants to get more involved with an experienced investor, maybe work like that. Like what a like just because he brought the deal to you, is that why you wanted to work with him? Was there something else that stood out and, and made you want to work with him on this? Yeah, he was he was just hustling, man. I love a hustler that's out there who's, you know, knocking on doors and calling leads and sourcing deals. And as you start to get a little bit of traction, if you're networking, and he's he was very good at networking. He networked with me. He really chased me down. Uh, and you know, that you see again that drive, that initiative. And I saw the fact he's chasing me down and then he found this great deal. And I'd looked at a couple other deals that he had had. He just stayed in front of me. I mean, he was just tenacious and that's such a good quality. Just get after it. And if there's somebody you want to do business with, just stay in front of them. Just be the little squeaky wheel until they look at your deals. And then there's room. I mean, if you've got a deal, I don't care who who they are. They're going to be interested in working with you if there's money to be made. Well, that's the key is you want to stay in front of them if you're getting deals, right? If you're just annoying the crap out of them, that's a good way to get (laughs) yourself blocked. 
and lose Very any true. opportunity that you would have had. Very uh, true. So on this deal in particular, can you tell us about the lessons that you learned? You know, interestingly, we had set the ARV, I think at like 350 on this thing. And the house, we put more into it than we planned, which happens sometimes. You get into a rehab and you're like, you know what? We really got to German schmear this brick, which we did on you know, around the foundation, or we really got to rebuild this deck. And so we ended up probably, we probably overspent by 50,000 bucks on this house. Wow. But but at the end of the project, it was such a good house that, you know, it's Anita and I, I remember clearly standing in the kitchen with her and looking at the comps and I was like, you know, we were going to list this thing for 350 and we're sitting there staring at these comps and we're like, you know what, let's just stink and go for it. Let's just put it on the market at 440 because it was hard to comp because a lot of the houses around there were bigger houses, bigger yep. estate lots selling for seven, 800,000 bucks. And so this was hard to comp. It was sort of below that, that, that market. So we didn't know what the market would bear. And sometimes when that's the case, you just freaking go for it. Yeah. And so we listed at 440 just to see what would happen and got offers immediately. And we're just, it was one of those pleasant surprises that was the right opportunity to just kind of swing for the fences. I wouldn't, I don't advise always swinging for the fences, but there are those opportunities just swing for the fences. What's the worst that's going to happen? No activity, pull it off the market, wait a week and put it back on a you know, more realistic price. Yep. So yeah, have a flexible yeah. attitude towards your price and you can be successful, right? You can take that big swing. And if you miss, you're like, okay, well now I got two strikes. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to choke up on the bat. And I'm going to make sure I put the ball in play. Right. That's, that's exactly right. If you have that mentality, because sometimes houses are hard to comp and people don't realize yeah. that, that if you're, if you're talking about like track homes in Las Vegas and they're all the same thing, it's very easy to know what it's going to sell for. But you're talking about basically building an almost a house from the ground up on a really on a lot that you had to buy independent of everything else. And the comps were twice as much money. It's very hard to know what buyers are going to want to pay. So sometimes you have to just plan for the worst and hope for the best. And it's awesome to hear that worked out. Yeah, cool. I want to ask you, I know that you've mentioned a lot about all the different things you're doing, like the, the brick you're going to put in or what foundation work you're going to do. How much do you think investors should learn about construction themselves and how much should they just be relying on the person who's going to be doing the construction and, and just getting the number for it? That's a great question. Man, you should, if you're an investor that's doing any amount of flips, you should absolutely have construction knowledge so you're not getting taken to the cleaners. Mm -hmm. I think that starts when, uh, with getting multiple bids on houses. I mean, obviously if you find a construction, you know, GC that you like, I mean, there's nothing wrong with sticking with them, but early on you should absolutely be getting multiple bids from multiple GCs to see who's in line and start to learn the pricing. The other thing was that with any bid, you need to have so much detail on that bid. I want to see line item by line item, mm -hmm. what I'm spending for each of this, and then compare those across multiple bids and start to learn what's the market rate for each of these things that I'm paying for to put tile in the bathroom or a, these appliances or this countertop or these cabinets. You need to know what the market rate is. If you're doing this in any sort of volume, you have to be able to hold your uh, GCs accountable to, to the appropriate pricing. Yeah, that's really good. Really good. All right. Well, we got to shift out of this section and get into the next segment of the show, which we lovingly call our fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, let's get to the fire round. These are the questions that come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forums, and we're going to fire them at you, Ken. Are you ready for this? Can you I'm handle ready. It? All right, number one. Maybe. <laughs> I'm looking to get into multifamily, but they're hard to find in my area. So what do you think about building like a duplex or a triplex? Is that something that could be profitable? Uh, absolutely could be profitable. It depends on the market. 
I mean, are you in the in a market that bears that? What are the rents in the area? I sure heck would look for an existing duplex before I'd start building them. But if it's uh, if you can find a builder that'll build at the right price and the rents are strong, absolutely, it could be a viable strategy. All right. Next. All right. Question. Next question. We are looking at developing a city block into several multifamily units, which will be in line with the city code. We're looking at a way to finance this project. What have you found as the best financing for new construction of investment properties? So we do our new construction through a regional bank. So local and regional banks absolutely develop a relationship. You know, get yourself a local business banker. They're the ones that I, th- you know, any sort of new construction, whether it's commercial or uh, or residential, to me that's your best source. And then on the equity piece, you know, a lot of times we'll put together partners on the equity piece or even private lenders on the equity piece because there's going to be some sort of down payment component. So you know, a combination of uh, of actual institutional lenders, local institutional lenders, and some private money to me is the winning ticket. All right. Cool. Uh, next one. I'm trying to figure out how to estimate what a new home is going to be worth. The neighborhood I'm looking at is mostly older houses in the 70s. Uh, so the new house I want to build, I'm not sure how to estimate the value of that new construction. Any tips? That's tricky because we run into that. We do some infill, new construction as well. And so I always look at the you want to at least see a renovated comp. You know, I'll look at the best renovated comp in the area and try to get like a price per square foot and uh, assume, I mean, I think that's a conservative estimate is if new construction, you'll sell at least at their cost per square foot for a really nice renovated comp, hopefully more. All right. That's easy. I love that. Like pretty simple, you know, look for the first renovated comp because it's going to be as close to a new home as you can get and adjust from there. Great advice. Okay, next question. And this is something that comes up all the time. I'm very interested to hear how you answer it. I am partnering with an experienced flipper in my area. I am a realtor and we will be 50-50 partners. My question is, what is the best way to legally structure to protect us both and also best structure tax-wise? We have our own LLCs, but should we start a new LLC for this project? I would. (laughs) Would you? I would. Yeah, I, I mean, in my opinion, in a good operating agreement should uh, outline exactly who's getting paid what, what the responsibilities. At the very least, if you don't go that far, have a really good memorandum of understanding that documents who's doing what, who's responsible for what, who's putting what money in, and so that there's no disagreement or misunderstanding afterwards. But I don't know, to me, to, if it was me, I'd do an LLC, even if it's on a single project. And just have a, a good attorney draft up a, a really solid operating agreement that outlines the terms. All right. Good deal. Hey, what, when you mentioned memorandum of understanding, I actually did, did one of those recently, but what, how would you explain what that is? Honestly, it's not, it's not even necessarily an official document. It's more of I'm putting on paper how I perceive this deal and you do the same. And then there's always some back and forth. Okay, well, I, did, I wasn't thinking that. Okay, well, now I understand what you're thinking. And then when you put your signature on the bottom of it, Again, to me, it's just formalizing what you're agreeing with somebody else. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, because I had not heard of that before. And then uh, an attorney said we had a, a deal we were partnering on and uh, with a, a buddy of mine. And we decided that he decided that that would be the best way to go. And it basically yeah, it just puts everything we've been talking about in the world on a piece of paper that we can go refer back to later and be like, look, remember, this, this is what we agreed on. It just it's not quite as fancy and legally as a operating agreement, but it's it's there. It does its purpose. and. So that's right. Cool. Well, everybody worries about the LLC question, right? Like, oh, do I need an LLC or not? And they get stuck there. But really what's going to hurt you is the expectations that are missed between you and the other person. And you just, it's what you don't know that's going to be the problem where, well, I 
assume that would obviously be you. Yeah. And they're looking at it like, well, why would that be me? That should be you, right? And that's what's going to hurt your relationship and what's going to cause problems in the deal. And ultimately, that's what's going to lead to a lawsuit, which is what you're trying to avoid. So yeah, like the memorandum of understanding and the operating agreement is, in my opinion, so much more important than the tax structure that you're using for this thing. Uh, that's really what you want to nail down and get right. Yep. Yep. There you go. All righty. Next. Actually, that's the last question. So the next segment of our show, it's the Famous Four. Famous Four. This is the Famous Four, the same four questions we ask every guest every week. But before I ask them to you, let's hear from Mindy on what's going on this week on the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast. Okay, Brandon and David, are you sitting down? Good. Monday's episode of the Bigger Pockets Money Podcast will blow you away. We spent almost two hours with certified financial planner Kyle Mast and discussed about a million things to make your money work harder for you. Kyle gave us so many ideas and things to consider when planning your money's future. He shared information about what exactly is a CFP, how do they get paid, and most importantly, how to properly vet a CFP so you're working with someone who can best help you. Now, I like to think I know a lot about money and managing it, but I learned about a thousand things from Kyle. This episode truly is for anyone who has money and wants to have more. Okay, guys, thanks for letting me butt in. Now it's time for the Famous Four. And with that, let's get to the Famous Four. Number one, Ken, what is your favorite real estate-related book? You know, I'm going to go with the most influential in my life, which was the Carlton Sheets No Money Down System. Nice. Because that's what, I mean, it's not, I guess it's technically not a book, but it's... uh, that's what influenced me more than anything else. I haven't read, I'll be honest, I don't read a ton of real estate books. I guess I just sort of educated myself in the process. Probably dumb on my part, but the, at least what, what's impacted me and influenced me the most would be that right. corny course I did 13 years ago. Cool. That's awesome. What is your favorite business book? Uh, I had to think about this one for a second. I think, again, the one that's probably still I go back to in my mind in terms of the principles more than any other book I've read is Good to Great by Jim Collins. Okay. And some yep. of the, the principles that he extracted about leadership and about having the right people on the bus and the whole hedgehog concept. I, I feel like I go back to that in my mind a lot when making decisions. Yeah, I like that. Book. How about some of your hobbies? Hobbies are, uh, you know... If you guys have kids, you know that you have pre-kid hobbies yep. and post-kid yeah. hobbies. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> so like pre-kid, I mean, I played guitar. I played sports. I was on football, flag football teams and softball teams. And I feel like I don't do any of that. Now I coach a lot of little league teams. I've coached a lot of soccer teams. Hey, in fact, I coached uh, my son in his baseball. He's eight years old. And my little man, a little plug for him, he knocked a homer out in the outfield and I might have been the proudest dad in the world. <laughs> it was such a good. So, I mean, honestly, you know, when you're you're busy and you're in your career and you've got young ones, any of your spare time is with them. I mean, yeah. at least it is with me. We're four wheeling, we're camping, we're swimming in the pool, we're you know, we're playing their sports. I mean, I feel like those are my hobbies now, at least at this stage of life. Yeah, that's fantastic. Last question for me: What do you think sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up, they fail, or never get started? Uh, you know, we talked about that a little bit. I mean, I think drive is one of them. Some people are just driven to to grow and succeed. Some people are, are content and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's the people that are really driven. And then I think uh, second to that would be the people that overcome their fears. Mm-hmm. 
there's a lot of folks that, you know, like the idea of being real estate or flipping a house and they just can't get over that fear of what if I fail, the people that can get beyond that and push through that fear and learn from their mistakes. I think those are the ones that you see having success. Yeah. Great answer. Yeah. I love it. All right, Ken, where can people find out more about you? Um, just Google me. I'm everywhere, guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just kidding. No, uh, redbarnhomes.com is uh, sort of our home base. And it's, uh, it's a portal to some of our different brands and, and the different businesses that we do. And there's some pretty pictures of Anita and me on there that you can look at. Yeah, you're also on the cover of Team Beat Magazine this month. <laughs> is, that, is, that even, is that even a thing still? I don't know. Probably. <laughs> All right. Team, well. yeah, teams have no interest in a 42-year-old man, I promise. <laughs> okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk with the, uh, the producers over at Team Beat Magazine. We'll get you on the cover. We'll, we'll work on that. All right. Well, Ken, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, I love this stuff. So, uh, yeah, good luck on, the, on season two of the show as well, and keep it up in your real estate. Thanks, guys. I appreciate having me on. All right. Thanks. Bye. All right. That was our interview with Ken Corsini. Dude, he delivered it just like I was hoping he would. I mean, I, he, again, I've always looked up to this guy. For years, I've looked up to Ken. So uh, now you all know why. Yeah, Ken is a stud. And I think the coolest part is that he doesn't have that, like, I'm too cool for you because I'm on TV attitude. Very <laughs> down-to-earth yeah. guy. Totally willing to share, like, his failures and what yep. isn't going good. And, I mean, you could just sit back down and have a beer with that guy. He's like everybody else. Yeah, he really is. He's, a, he's super cool. And, uh, again, check out his show on October 11th. If you're watching this or listening to this show right now live, well, when the week it comes out. And if you're watching the future, make sure you go and check it out uh, and support Ken and uh, Anita and the family and uh, the show. So with that, that's all I got. I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to head out of here and go talk real estate. I got my buddy Ryan Murdoch here, who we call the real estate mercenary. And uh, he's hanging out, helping me out, get some stuff done at my house. We'll be talking a lot about our mobile home park that we're working on together. And, you know, I'm going to go hang out with him for a while because he's better looking than you. Sorry, David. That's that's debatable, <laughs> but I will allow it. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a rating review in iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever you listen to this and let people know that you like the show and maybe share it with somebody on your Facebook page today and say, hey, I think you'd like this show and just go post it on their wall. For BiggerPockets.com, this is Brandon and David, assistant to the regional manager, Green, <laughs> signing off. I stole it. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market, it's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals and enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and bam, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. This free resource is only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com deals to find your investor-friendly agent today.
The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.